Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to Small Business Digest Radio. My name is Don Mazzella, and I am your host for a program devoted to identifying strategies and suggestions to help small business managers increase profits, add sales, better manage cash flow, improve employee management, and streamline operations. Our guests are other entrepreneurs and experts offering their solutions to the problems and opportunities facing small business leaders. Our aim in each program is to provide one or two thought-provoking ideas or suggestions. So follow us on Twitter at hashtag 2SBDigest or at our website at www.smallbusinessdigest.net I'm really happy to be with you tonight and uh, have a returning guest, Jason Kennedy, Director of Business Marketing and Product Management for Intel's Business Client Group. Boy, that's a long title. But uh, he's been with us before and uh, he was really informed the last time and now he's back uh, talking about the changing in office environment. But, Jason, before we talk about it, tell us a little bit about yourself personally, because I know I found it fascinating the last time. Yeah, thanks, Don. Uh, appreciate the opportunity. Great to uh, be with you in the in the show. Uh, really appreciate the, the dialogue and interaction uh, that we had uh, last time, and, and so some uh, ongoing interviews uh, uh, interesting uh, discussions and, and developments in the technology space and uh, the further growth of uh, small business uh, is sort of exciting uh, on the transformation that's uh, that's ahead of us. So uh, on a personal level, uh, so I've been with Intel uh, uh, 20 years uh, in a variety of roles uh, and at the, the home life. So I'm married and, and have a, a two children who I love to watch uh, with their sporting events and uh, go out there and enjoy movies or live music, and uh, occasionally, uh, you know, have a nice uh, glass of wine to to relax in the evening. Well, uh, the wine part, I sure everybody enjoys. So now, uh, there's been a lot of changes since your last time here, and we're here to talk about uh, how office automation is changing. You know, uh, I, I usually feel I throw the floor open to you and just go on in. Uh, tell us what's going on. Uh, fantastic. So uh, there, there's been a exciting amount of you know ongoing evolution, and the rate of change uh, in uh, computing uh, has been pretty uh, amazing over the last few years, and and I would argue even over the last year, the the rate of change and uh, opportunities and innovation have, has only accelerated. Uh, and we're seeing it, you know, both on the inside and outside of, of computing. So devices themselves uh, are actually evolving very, very quickly. So the the style and ideas of desktops and notebooks, even from a few years ago, uh, let alone you know five or ten or, or more years, uh, has been very, very amazing. In the notebook space, uh, we we've seen the average thickness uh, and weight uh, be cut in half just over the last two years. Uh, the battery life has gotten significantly better, and the performance uh, has still grown over that time frame uh, by two, and in some cases, much more uh, uh, faster in terms of performance as well. 
Uh, and then even in the desktop space, uh, there's innovations in terms of uh, commercial-grade all-in-one types of devices, uh, as well as an exciting new category of mini desktop PCs. So you can you can see some of these uh, desktop systems that are the same performance level uh, as traditional quote tower uh, PCs that may be taking up you know half of your uh, your desk or, or uh, kicking around uh, under under your desk, uh, taking 75 to sometimes even 90 percent of that space uh, away. Uh, and still have that same level of performance. So you can almost literally now take some of these computing devices and put them anywhere. And another uh, evolution that's been uh, pretty exciting, uh, as well as some of the transitions with more modern operating systems, Windows 8.1, and some of the uh, new developments that Microsoft is starting to uh, discuss around the, the next generation of operating systems called Windows 10, uh, has really lit up uh, excitement and enthusiasm around what we call two-in-one devices. Uh, so these can either convert, or in some cases even the screen uh, removes from the, the keyboard base and detaches. Uh, these two-in-one systems are very, very exciting because it balances the, the best productivity enhancements and things that your traditional notebook would have. Uh, with the the thinness, lightness, and the ease of use that uh, people have been familiar with in, in tablet-based computing. So both of those types of form factors, a tablet and a notebook, in one. Uh, and we're seeing you know, from all the major uh, OEM suppliers, the HP, Lenovo, Dell, Fujitsu, you know, on down the list, uh, have really been embracing this category of, of two-in-ones and, and Intel-based Ultrabooks uh, for business in an exciting way. Well, the last time you were here, we were talking about the uh, end of XP, uh, of Microsoft's support for XP, and we thought it would be catalyst. Catalyst. We I can't even pronounce it now. Well, we thought catalyst. there would be a, right, uh, and we would all be changing. But the, I just read a survey the other day that said eighty-three uh, percent of small businesses. Who had XP were still utilizing XP in in one form or another, and uh, uh, you, uh, I asked you at the time about uh, what I should buy because I I had I I was on XP and uh, had to move over, and very reluctantly moved over to uh, uh, Windows uh, 8 and uh, found found myself surprisingly uh, pleased with it. I didn't think I would be. And uh, on your advice, you said do it. And then um, um, and now we have Windows 10 coming up, with, uh, coming out, which is even more explosive. But for many small businesses, uh, uh, if it's if it ain't broke, it's uh, you, you don't fix it. But uh, these changes, why should they may be making these changes, Jason? Don, that that's a fantastic question, and, and some of the realities. Uh, it's been well over a decade uh, that XP has been invented, uh, and the nature of computing, uh, and in this case, for a commercial, for a small business uh, standpoint, even more so, the, the types of, of computing operations that's required for uh, being as efficient and as effective as possible are just different than we had you know, a decade or two ago. Uh, and the other reality that uh, small businesses really should uh, be aware of uh, and taking necessary actions is around security. Uh, so 
some small businesses, hopefully fewer and fewer, and then people listening to this this call are uh, you know gaining some of that uh, of their own awareness. But uh, the uh, people doing bad things, the malware, the virus riders, and the people that are trying to you know get uh, access to the information. Yes, we've all read the. Um, the high-level you know, brand name uh, enterprises and retailers that have been hit with hacks, uh, and unfortunately, that's uh, that's continuing. But many, many small businesses uh, are e- seen as even more quote easy targets uh, to gain uh, access of that information than you would uh, traditionally expect from from some enterprises that may have a, a deeper pocket of. Uh, you know, IT support and, and uh, sophistication. So uh, moving to new uh, operating systems as well as uh, new hardware because uh, security has been an area that we've uh, been paying attention to uh, for many, many years, but having accelerated our pace of uh, having hardware assistance uh, in earnest for the last, you know, say three or four years uh, to be very, very aggressive at the hardware level uh, to make uh, the levels of security much more robust. And even on the security, it's probably worth a moment to address. When, when you say that word, it, it can mean many things to many people. So how we've tried to, to look at it and, and provide investments at uh, a platform level, both hardware and then engage with uh, our software community. And, and we've, uh, I think last year it was um, you know, when we were even more robust with some of the assets in, in software security around McAfee that we've uh, further integrated. But uh, we're trying to look at vectors like malware prevention, so the viruses there, how can you make uh, that interaction more robust, the uh, data protection. We all, uh, all have recognized you know, the data itself is is critical to do your business, and in some cases there's uh, compliance and privacy issues. So if any of that data leaks out, um, uh, it can be sometimes catastrophic to a business. Uh, and then the other uh, point is how do you make sure that the right people have access to the right information at the right time? Uh, in that category of identity and access management, you know, how can you make it easier for people to first and foremost get their job done, uh, but balance that with uh, passwords and other means of authentication so they can, again, uh, be focused on doing their work, but at the same time be protected. And sort of the last but uh, not least uh, element of security that we're uh, trying to make more robust uh, is through resiliency. So if there are issues, how do you prevent uh, those issues or do upgrades or updates, make those as easy as possible so, again, you can uh, be focused on getting your job done either at an organizational level or at a, a personal worker level? Well, you know, uh, starting a business today is, in my view and the view of a lot of other people, a lot easier. You can almost run a business today uh, off your computer and through the uh, cloud, no matter how comp- complex the the system, but it puts you. Uh, uh, but for small business, according to our surveys, they feel more vulnerable because they're putting it up in the cloud. Um, but I have to also tell you that um, uh, we were uh, attacked for almost uh, six weeks. Uh, uh, we were under a heavy attack and lost data, etc. Um, and uh, uh, w- w- despite putting up massive security, 
uh, and I heard a statistic which I couldn't believe. Every minute in the United States, 1,300 small businesses were attacked. Uh, have, have you seen any figures like that? Um, I, I'm not sure if I've seen those particular statistics, but uh, unfortunately, um, uh, those types of somewhat, you know, surprising numbers uh, are are becoming more validated. Uh, so, un unfortunately, uh, I, I'm not not surprised by those numbers. And and the other uh, statistic that we have seen is of those, you know. This, you know, well over a thousand, you know, hit at such level of frequency. Uh, unfortunately, the other statistics are uh, if you're hit, if your small business hit with a major attack, um, the data that we've seen is uh, close to two thirds of those same businesses actually go out of business in the next six to nine months. So it can, you know, I, I'm not, <laughs> not, don't really like to, you know, be a, be sort of a fear monger, but it is just the, the nature of how business is, is done. It's a lot more based on uh, computing requirements. And so again, we're, we're trying to be very, very proactive and partnering with small businesses to make sure that they have the, the tools necessary to really operate uh, safely uh, in, in today's you know, operating environment. Well, I'm, uh, you know, we can conduct annual surveys, small business, and generally have about 2,000 respondents. And one of the one of the questions that I put on uh, this this year's study surprised me is the um, the fact that Intel as a company and as a provider w uh, had the highest recognition of, of that people seem to recognize in, uh, Intel in the box. So your advertising seems to be working, particularly among hmm. small business. Uh, but what do you what do you really do? Uh, you provide the uh, working, uh, uh, the, the inner working, I'm, and I'm blanking on on uh, uh, the microprocessor that's used. But um, what do you do in terms of the security that makes it, uh, that that makes a small business feel a little bit more cons uh, uh, safe, so they shouldn't feel safe at all? Until they um, they weathered an attack, in my view. Well, yeah, and so I I wouldn't I wouldn't wish uh, uh, an attack that you would have to recover from, but uh, many times you know, people uh, uh, do change behaviors after uh, after actions. So the first piece would be you know we'd we'd um, advocate uh, that uh, people try to uh, mitigate risk wherever possible. Uh, proactively, so they can prevent uh, issues in the in the future and, and uh, be more robust. And so, from a company uh, perspective, you know, we uh, we've we've taken efforts to establish it as a as security specifically as a core part of our brand and mission. Uh, so, you know, technology and performance is 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 sort of the first vector that. Uh, we intend to continue to uh, elevate and in some ways in, in concert with the, and we just hit our, our anniversary, but the 40, 40th anniversary of uh, one of our founders, Gordon Moore's, Moore's Law uh, of technology uh, acceleration uh, over time that we're, uh, it's still alive and well. So the technology and performance side, we're, we're very confident that we have leadership there. 
explain what Moore's, we explain what Moore's law is to our audience. Uh, sure, sure. If it's not a phrase that that's familiar, and it 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 started uh, as uh, somewhat of a a PhD doctoral uh, analysis of the amount of transistors. So in a microprocessor, uh, it, it started with uh, you know dozens and hundreds, and and we're now literally into the uh, billion plus. Uh, individual transistor, transistors uh, that uh, carry information, uh, and, and then when terms like megahertz or gigahertz goes through, it's that frequency uh, that the information among those now billion-plus transistors uh, can do uh, computations. Uh, and then Moore's law was that the uh, in you know, roughly a year to a year and a half that the number of transistors uh, on a chip would would double. Uh, and so, as part of that doubling and the, at a, a relatively constant size, the uh, space between all those interactions continues to get smaller and smaller, and, and the ability to do interesting novel work gets faster and faster. So that's where uh, that's where the Moore's Law concept. And, and so again, it's a uh, it's been uh, 40 years, and it's it's you know kind of literally rocket science and, and trying to get to uh, you know. The the modes are you know like 14 nanometers, 14 mil, you know 14 millionths of an inch, so it's it's almost literally the size of atoms that that we're getting the the levels of these transistors apart, and it, it, it's roughly a centimeter squared if you can think about the the size of these chips and putting a billion of something on on that size is is pretty amazing. Oh, it truly really is. Uh, there's a satellite that. Uh... Uh, 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 a space probe that's uh, just entered orbit, orbit around Cirrus that went out, and they were saying uh, that in the uh, the Mars rover and a couple of others, uh, where uh, they had the most advanced technology of, of their day, and yet uh, they're relatively puny by today's standards. But uh, um, and, and I know Intel. This is not a commercial for Intel. It's just that I have to like the company. And, and know what they did, uh, Jason. We yeah. have to go to our next guest, but if you know more yeah, it, about, go ahead. Yeah. So just 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 to kind of to to maybe put a, a wrap up. Um, businesses of all sizes are um, sort of being uh, driven to transform how they do business, and and computing uh, is um, a, a natural part of that. And so there's. Uh, a big ecosystem of capabilities that can help uh, businesses of all sizes and especially small businesses be more effective and being able to operate on a local level and a world-wide uh, level uh, with um, uh, amazing uh, opportunities. So the the levels of innovation on the PC, the form factors themselves, uh, is definitely something if you haven't been uh, shopping for PCs, I think you'll be uh, very, very pleasantly surprised of what is uh, available. And then on the inside, some of that transformation is happening from uh, what you can do uh, without wireless or, or without wires. So capabilities in terms of better and easier displays, uh, being able to even dock to your monitors and other peripherals without wires. So lots of uh, exciting opportunities. And again, uh, as we talked a lot about in this call, uh, the uh, all of this to make it business class has a foundation of security and making it easier, easy as possible to be uh, as resilient and, and avoid some of those ongoing maintenance challenges that 
uh, older uh, systems uh, just, you know, I frankly can uh, can no longer compete with. Well, I have so again, to tell you, uh, Don. I think thanks for your time. No, no, I want to tell you, Jason. I have just eliminated. It's just it's taken me a year, but I finally eliminated all the wires in my office, and it started with your conversation a year ago. But it, but it's just in the last two weeks that the last wires went. So uh, <laughs> I just want to tell you that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, uh, thanks again, uh, Don, for your time. And uh, there's some fantastic systems available based on the fifth gen uh, core and core vPro uh, processors. So uh, be on the lookout for those. And uh, I'm very confident that you'll uh, you'll walk away uh, pleased with your decision. Well, you've got to come back again next year and we'll talk more about what's going on because each year is uh, a jump. If possible, Don, I'd I'd love to come back uh, before that because uh, I really enjoyed uh, enjoyed the time. Okay, thank you, Jason. And have a good day. You too. Cheers. Our next guest is Robbie Kelman Baxter. Uh, she um, she came came to me across the desk, and she talked about the membership economy, which I had never heard about before, and uh, I had to say she had to come on the program. Uh, Robbie, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Don. I'm glad to be here. Well, uh, first, we ask all our guests to say a little bit about themselves personally before we get into anything else. So please tell us a little bit about of your background. Sure. Um, so for, let's see, I, I grew up in uh, in Silicon Valley, so I've I've always been in this world of uh, of technology and entrepreneurs um, it's pretty much where where I've grown up, and for the last 15 years, I've been a strategy consultant working with technology companies. Um, I have three kids, and uh, I'm married, and love uh, love what I do. Okay, now uh, tell us about the me- uh, membership economy, because I yeah. knew nothing about it. Great. Well, I first. Uh, you know, I first coined the term several years ago uh, after having worked uh, with several companies that were demonstrating a lot of the same uh, the same structures and responding to what I was starting to see as a big trend. So about 14, 13, 14 years ago, I was working with Netflix, uh, the movie company, and I fell in love with this business model that at the time I didn't have a name for, but I loved that they used a subscription model. I loved that they used information about different customers to recommend movies to other customers who behaved in a similar way. Um, I loved that customers could get access to all these movies without the burden of ownership and having the dusty DVDs piling up in a corner while you go out and buy another movie for the next Saturday night. And after working with Netflix, it really changed the trajectory of my career, and I started to work pretty exclusively with what I'm calling membership economy companies. And and these companies are companies and and actually nonprofits as well that have a value for membership, uh, for belonging, for recognizing their members as unique individuals, and for providing them access benefits that they care about as opposed to being focused on ownership of products. Okay. 
So um, I could see it for a movie. I can see it for other things. So uh, I'm a small business. Why? Why would that? How could I adapt that to my small business, or to any business for that matter? Yeah. So small businesses are actually uniquely suited to taking advantage of the membership economy for for a couple of reasons. One is they actually usually have authentic personal relationships with a lot of their customers. Um, you know, in many cases, the, the customers actually come into a physical place. They, they know their needs. They extend credit. It's a much more um, personal uh, and, and customized kind of relationship to start. And, and big companies just have a much, much harder time doing that as a, to, to start with. And then in, in addition, um, because they're so close to their customers, they can develop ongoing formal relationships. So I've seen everything from nail salons uh, where you can, you can go in and get your, your nails touched up anytime you want and you pay a fixed monthly fee because the benefit of going to a nail salon is to have your nails look nice. It's not to get a manicure. A manicure is like a transaction, but the benefit is having nice nails and nice hands. So organizations that are thinking about the benefit that the customer wants as opposed to being locked in their own view of the products they can offer are going to be able to establish these long-term relationships. So I've seen it with, with nails. I've seen uh, restaurants that have built you know, very personal relationships with repeat customers who have a formal ongoing relationship. I've seen it with uh, small professional services providers, consultants, designers, attorneys. Um, there's a lot of different ways that small businesses actually can, can take advantage of, of this major trend. Well, uh, since we have the time, time I'm, I'm going to say I'm a small business, and let, let's say it's a nail salon, which you, you bring up. Sure. Um, most, uh, a lot of uh, small businesses are learning they have to build up their email lists, they have to uh, be more personalized with with their customer, but how do they do it? How do you, you go? How do you go in and uh, the the process of um, educating the, the owner and then implementing the program? What do okay. you do? Yeah. So so let's let's do the nail salon. Okay. So so let's say that a, a, a nail salon owner says to me, "Okay, Robbie, I want to be part of the membership economy. What do I do?" The first thing that I would do is I would work with them to think about how they can change their offering from, you know, a manicure is $15, a pedicure is $32, you know, that kind of very transactional relationship and say, what would it, what would it cost? What would it, you charge your best customers to get all the services that they wanted every month on a monthly basis? So we would explore that, what, kind of a subscription model. What would it cost to have an ongoing relationship? And I would start them off with their best customers because that's really always where you want to start. And then once we had that in place, we would want to start communicating with them regularly and giving them opportunities to get to know other subscribers, other members. Um, so in the nail salon, that would be creating community when people come in, introducing people to one another, allowing them to talk about things uh, that they're mutually interested in. So that might be something obvious, like what color 
polish or what kind of polish is the is the most long-lasting, but it might be something that's not obvious that all the people there would share, like an interest in things going on in the local town, or maybe they all work in similar fields or or things like that. Oh, well, um, so, uh, all right, we're, we're sitting there, but do, but do you do it through emails? Do you do it through, I mean, is it, do you try to develop a program program um you know it, what you described is, is something people um uh, a lot more people are doing but uh you call it the membership uh economy go a little further into this um qu- quite frankly i put a lot of t- uh, set aside a lot of time because i i find what you're doing fascinating and i think our audience will as well so give us a little bit more detail because Sure. Please. So, so so the idea is, you know, I, I talked about subscription, you know, where you make an ongoing payment in exchange for access to something as opposed to buying something in a transaction that you own. And that is an element of the membership economy, but a subscription is not a membership and subscription is a payment model. Membership is an attitude. So, do you know what it feels like when you belong somewhere? Don, have you had that experience, you know, where you say, I belong, I'm a member of this group? Um, Well, you you know, when you just said that, uh, I have uh, dinner regularly with a a friend of mine who's lonely, uh, and we always go to the same diner. And the diner, whenever I walk in the door, the busboy knows to put a, a cup of coffee on my desk before on my table before I sit down. I mean, I really feel as if I belong to that diner. Um, that, is that what you're talking about? That exactly, exactly. That is the experience that people want. And I'll, I'll ask you another question. You know, when when you're thinking about this diner. When they make a mistake, like they bring you the wrong thing or uh, it's cold or, you know, something goes wrong, do you do you feel less – do you cut them more slack than you might um, be willing to do for a, for a, um, a restaurant where you've, you've never been before? Well, I'm kind of unusual. I, I, um, uh, I, I cut them le- – um, uh, well, I, I'm unusual. That if if the meal is not served right, having uh, once run a diner, I always send it back because they should know. But but I I know it. But my wife will never send anything back. But you're absolutely right. So, uh, but but here's here's what I think is the difference between when you're a member of a of a place like a diner versus when you're not, is that if I go to a place where I don't have a relationship and they make and they and they give me poor experience. I don't go back. But if I'm right. a member somewhere and they have a bad night, I know the people there. I know the busboy who brings me my coffee. And so I'm more likely to give them another chance. I might give them a lot more feedback because the relationship is very personal, but I'm going to be more loyal, which is really the outcome that, that organizations want. What, what you're doing with membership is you're kind of upping the ante on both sides because the member feels more entitled to give a lot of feedback, 
um, to complain, to ask for special favors. You know, hey, I want the coffee, but when when you make my coffee, can you use those cups and not those cups? And, you know, I like my eggs with a little bit of cheese, not so much cheese, because you know Absolutely. them. And on the other side, they expect you to cut them a little slack when they when they have a tough time. Oh, and, yeah. Um, you know, that's you're... what membership is about. It's It's building that stronger relationship that outlasts, you know, a small bump in the road on either side. Absolutely, but let me let me ask you the other side of that. I go to a strange place, and they do something wrong. Uh, and, uh, again, restaurants are different, but in restaurants, if I if I complain, it's very interesting. Sometimes the reaction is absolutely you're right. Here here's something else. I'll take this off. Or there's a soul attitude about it. It's very interesting, and that. I think it has more to do with the individual establishment than than what you're saying, but it is it is something that I notice in in many different areas. Uh, service is so so important, and how you react to a situation is so important. And many many uh, uh, places that I that I and other people have seen simply haven't adopted that idea. Am, am I on the wrong track there? No, I think you're absolutely right, and and. One of the key principles of the membership economy is that because the organization is aiming for an ongoing formal relationship, so so that the the extreme outcome of your your diner example would be that you pay them every month and you're able to go in and have you know as many dinners as you want, or you you always get you know the special of the day on on you know Tuesday nights when you go in and you pay a fixed price and they save you the best table. And, you know, in order for, you know, if an organization makes a decision to move to a membership model, they need to be really focused on customer success. And I say it's even more than customer service because service implies, you know, I'm serving you, I'm doing what you tell me to do, what you need me to do. But success means that they're fully engaged in you having the benefits that you want. So in a restaurant case, the benefits that you want are the quality food, but it's also the way it's presented. It's also the you know the pace and the experience of the evening. It's also you know are they are they friendly? Are they helpful? Do they suggest things that you might not have tried before that you might like? So service, um, especially in the membership economy, is critical, and especially for small businesses where so much of the interaction is face to face. Well, I, I I noticed there's a real discussion going on. It's a big company, um, uh, but it's the a big ebook company has this new product that, uh, where and I'm I'm, uh, I'm I'm blanking on name uh, where you can pay for a, a fee for a month and get as many books as you want uh, downloaded, and the whole book industry is looking at this model. Uh, um, it's the big one, and I, uh, I'm blanking on the name right now. Uh, 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 where you you just pay one fee uh, for that month, and you can download uh, the books that you want. Oh, the um, Amazon's new program. Yes, yes. Uh, that, yeah. Would that be an example of a membership? Uh, yeah, they're, uh, they're moving that way. So Amazon is really interesting, and I actually profile them in 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 the book quite a bit, and I. I you know, I, I think they do a lot of things really well. And what they're doing, you know, they've bought Goodreads, 
which is a, a, a site for people who love to read and love to talk about their books. They also you know, make the hardware, the Kindle, that allows you to see books online. And they are now allowing people to you know, basically borrow as many as they can read you know, in very much of like a Netflix model. And so those things combined are kind of closing the loop because you can, you can download the books, so you have this subscription, this access over ownership model, but you also have the, the ability to have community because what do you want to do when you've read a book? You, you want to talk about it with somebody who also read the book. And a lot of times, you know, your, your friends, your spouse, you know, they haven't read the same book. And so, you know, building a book community you know, if you said, what does a membership look like? What does a book lover want? Well, they want to read a lot of books. They don't want to, you know, most of them don't want to have so many books take over their house, although I guess some do. And they want to be able to talk about the books. And so a good membership model for books would provide members with, with all of those benefits. Hmm. Uh, and the name of your book? The name of the book is The Membership Economy. And um, it's launching this month. It's available now on uh, Amazon. Uh, you can get it on, on Barnes & Noble. You can get it through uh, IndieBound. Uh, you know, and by the end of the month, it'll be in most independent bookstores as well. Okay. And uh, it's, Ro it's Robbie Kelman Baxter, and the name of the book is The Membership Economy, which is obvious. But I, again, um, uh, we've had several people on on this show who have uh, kind of created a new category, and as far as I know, no one else has uh, called it the membership economy, and I, I find it fascinating. And uh, I certainly understand it better now, and I hope our audience did. Yeah, I, I do too. Um, it, it was it was fun to talk to you, and it's. You know, I, I really hope that it's helpful for the small business owners uh, in your in your audience who are thinking about ways to build profitability and loyalty, and you know, have real relationships with their with their customers. Well, if they wanted to reach you directly, how can they do yeah, they can um, they can come to the website and there's an email. It's rbaxter at membership economy. Um, and, and your uh, website? www.membershipeconomy.com. Okay. Um, Robbie, we want you to come back towards the end of the year uh, when we do our roundup and tell us how it's doing and tell us more about the membership economy. Great. That would be my pleasure, Don. Thanks so much for having me on today. Uh, no, thank you. Really a pleasure. Yeah, it really was. Thank you very much. Our, our next guest is Alan Kazucci. He's Managing Director of Thought for Food and Sun, which helps startup and uh, growing food companies succeed. Alan, welcome to the program. Good evening. Thank you, Don. Thank you for having me on. Well, um, I have to tell you, uh, I, I seldom got any, as many uh, emails with questions as I, I did. Uh, <laughs> so... Uh, but, but we all ask all our guests first to say a little bit about themselves personally and their ba background so that the audience knows a little bit about them. About them. Okay. A little bit about uh, yourself. 
All right. Yeah, actually, I started in the business, uh, oh, God, a good uh, 27, 28 years ago. I actually started as a designer in an ad agency in Boston and slowly but surely worked my way into uh, account service work and then from there into uh, new business work, um, from there into branding work, and uh, worked at a couple of very large agencies in Boston uh, for about 15 years, Went to an agency in uh, Rhode Island um, that was owned by a couple of attorneys. Uh, they ended up getting in a fight. I took the ad division uh, to my home, and 10 years later, uh, here we are, Thought for Food and Son. It's a uh, family-run business. Uh, two of my sons work with me. Uh, we consider ourselves a creative boutique, and we have built the company uh, directly for the needs of the food industry. And we work with food companies throughout the country. We work with a lot of emerging brands. I would say that's probably about 70% of our business. And the other 30% is working with more established brands and some larger food companies. Okay. Well, uh, uh, I'm going to start by a, a question uh, um, that was actually, uh, I was uh, standing outside. I, I'm in Reno. Uh, Today and I was standing outside the hotel having a uh, smoking my one cigar of the day, and when I was telling him about who I was having on the program, her first question is: uh, She has a catering company, in and she's in a, 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 a not an executive chef, but she goes into homes and she has unusual um, uh, recipes that the people in Indianapolis say are terrific. What what should she, she uh, first start out to do to commercialize what she's doing? If she came to you, what would be the questions you'd be asking her? Yeah, well, the first thing is, you know, where where do you want to, you know, what do you want to be? Do you want to be on the food service side of the business, which is the restaurant aspect of it, institutional, the colleges, or do you want to be in the retail side of it? And if she's going to be on the retail side of it, then obviously she has to be able to f formulate these different recipes that she has, and she would have to find a co-packer, which is a which is a big process. If she's on the food ser food service side of the business, basically it would be the same thing. But what she would have to do there is her her cost would be a lot less than trying to go retail. So somebody like that. You know, they're at the very, very beginning of what they want to do. So the first question is they have to figure out what they want to be. So that would be my answer to that. Uh, okay. We've had several successful people on uh, the, the show who have brought their products. One of the toughest things they always say is getting in, if they have a product, is getting it into a, uh, a retail establishment and the supermarkets. How do you... Uh, is that part of what you help them do? Yes. What, what we do with a lot of young food brands, there's many, many layers you know, in the food industry. Um, and it starts at the very beginning, what your product is, where is that product going to live in the store? Are you going to produce it yourself? Are you going to need a co-packer for it? Uh, you need to educate the food trade, which are the different category buyers that are in the industry, to what your product is. And at the same time, you have to create consumer buzz about your product. So what we do is we have a strategic partnership with a company called Source One Sales and Marketing, which is actually in uh, Long Island, uh, New York. 
And they are one of the leading brand management companies. They actually have three of our clients right now. Uh, one they've taken from oh about 500 stores in the past two and a half years to three years to 4,000 stores. And what we do is we support each other when we're taking that product to retail. So we come up with retail strategies. So what we're doing on our side on the PR aspect of it is we're communicating with the trade to what the benefits of the product is, what makes them different than other products that are within that category. At the same time, we're always looking at, con at consumer media, and depending upon what the product is, and an example of that is one of our clients is called Healthy Solution Spice Blends, and there are 16 distinct individual uh, dry spice, uh, spice blends. And what we've been doing is we've been going to newspapers with different kind of recipes, sending recipes out to them. We just did, a, uh, in the process of doing a blogger recipe challenge with her products where we have 100 blogs from across the country right now uh, creating uh, recipes with her products. And then we're taking that, we're putting on social media platforms and we're putting it out there so we can create buzz for it in turn. We want those people to go to their local retailers and ask them to carry the product. So a lot of people have great products. Every category buyer out there has heard that from every, everyone. They get emails, phone calls on a daily basis that I have the next best product. The thing you need to do is to be able to work with a company like us where we can introduce you to different distributors, different brokers that are out in the marketplace. And that's a big advantage that we have over over other marketing companies. Well, uh, uh, m many of the companies. Uh, well, the uh, second uh, how, uh, another of the questions that came up through, and I'm just reading it now, is uh, um, how do you establish a budget for all of uh, for this? Uh, uh, the, I, I have a uh, uh, a dairy product, an unusual dairy product. How, how do I uh, determine a budget uh, to, to talk to you and to other people about? Yeah, well, it, it, that's, you know, it's, that's kind of, as they say, a loaded question. It really depends upon where you are within the growth of, of your company. At the very beginning, we deal with a lot of companies that have basically have saved money, uh, they have borrowed money from, from friends and families. They've already gone through their first round of financing. Um, and then usually you're looking at like 3% or 4% of your sales that would go against your, your marketing budget. Whereas we have other clients that are much more established. They're already in their third round of funding. Or a lot of the companies that we deal with are third-generation family businesses where they are established, so they have a marketing budget. And like I said, it's usually 3 to 4%, depending upon usually what category you're in. So for an example, if it's a granola, most likely you're going to have a bigger spend because you're going to have more competition because there's tons of granolas that are out there on the shelves. So you really need to be able to break through that clutter. So it, it really is a function of where you are with, you know, at that time in your business when you talk with us. And, you know, obviously we can help you with that. You know, we work with our clients to try to establish budgets so that they have an understanding. We're not going to promise something if we can't deliver it. So, you know, to us, 
we have to understand what they have to spend because we obviously want to manage expectations and deliver what we say we're going to deliver. Do you ever turn away clients? Uh, yes. Clients? Um, yes, because um, your, your product has to be newsworthy. Um, you know, the the buyers, or or not only the buyers, but also consumer media, is not really interested in another pasta sauce, for an example. Mm-hmm. Okay, there's tons of them out there. They're not really interested in another shrimp par- uh, product, okay, because there's a lot of those out there. They're not really interested in another potato chip because there's a lot of those out there. So we try to, you know, be choosy, if you will, about who we take on, again, because we want to be able to de- deliver results. And that's what we pride ourselves on is giving and delivering on results. And if we do that, then we're successful and our client's going to be successful. Well, um, you're on this program. Uh, if you were in front of an, of an audience, what, what are the three things uh, you would say to someone thinking of doing a food product? Well, I would say, number one, be original. Uh, really do your research and look for a product that doesn't have a lot of competition. You know, there's over probably 10,000 new products that are launched yearly within the food industry. Uh, so <laughs> you really have to do your homework and understand what kind of a product you're bringing. You need to understand the trends that are going on in the industry right now. Non-GMO is is a huge thing that was introduced, uh, if, I'm, if I am correct, through Whole Foods, which is the non-GMO verified. Retailers are looking for that kind of a product, Okay. The other aspect well, well, of that well, is... Excuse food. me, Alan, what is GMO? It, it's to make sure that none of your um, ingredients um, have been, and I'm not going to say it correctly, uh, Jim, uh, I can't say the word off the top of my head. They have to make sure that they're pure, and I, and I apologize to the audience. I don't have it off the top of my head. Um, but you can go on to the non non-GMO project um, website, and you'll be able to see it. We have right. one of our clients that are doing that right now. By the way, what is your website? It's www.tffandandson.com. Uh, uh, phonetically, do, do the, the website again for our audience, because yeah. this is video. It's, yeah, it's www.tffandandson.com. Okay. Because uh, I want to pass it on to our audience. Um, uh, I interrupted you. I'm sorry. You were you were doing so well, but I wanted to make sure our audience knew. So what is the third thing? You've got two of them done. What's the third? And, and, you know, and obviously you need to believe in your product and you need to be the stand behind it. A lot of people bring products to market and, you know, they get very frustrating. It's an industry where you can seriously spin wheels for two to three years if you do not understand the process of getting a product into retail. I We get so many phone calls from, from food companies that have been talking to different distributors, brokers, and they can't understand why they can't get in. Nobody pays attention to them. And it's it's really an industry that you have to really persevere. 
and you've got to stand behind your product, and you have to sell your product. You can't leave it up to a distributor to do it. You can't leave it up to a broker to do it. You have to be able to go sell your product. Well, you know, the, that last, uh, uh, what I've noticed about the successful food companies we've had on this program is that, the, A, they're passionate about it, and, two, they've gone out and really uh, busted their uh, hump to get this uh, Get their yep. product uh, uh, sold. It's the it's the single uh, great <coughs> single thing that that appeared no matter what products are. We've had ice cream on here. We've had peanut brittle. We've had any number of things on here. Um, and usually they're very successful. Um, but by the time they reach this program, they've uh, gone in second, third, fourth rounds. Um, right, but uh, when when your your uh, when your particular company came through, I was so happy to have you on the program because you're really looking at it from the industry end. Um, uh, I assume you go to the food show every year in New York. Uh, yeah, yeah, we'll actually be going to the International Seafood Show this weekend. That's going to be in Boston, which is uh, over. Oh, I think there's going to be at least 3,500 seafood companies there from around the world. It's a, a great three days in the city. Um, then you'll have the Fancy Food Show uh, at the Javits, and that's usually yeah. at the end of June, which is a tremendous show. And then you'll have Expo East, which I think is going to be held either in Baltimore or Washington, D.C., which most likely will be in September. Um, and those usually start out on the West Coast. There's the Fancy Food Show. Um, in D, in January on the West Coast, and Expo West just happened last weekend um, out uh, in California. But now, at all of these shows, um, oh, a are they good to, to go to? But more importantly, what are the the things that you tell uh, your clients to do at these shows? Well, what we do for our clients at these shows is we really, really get behind them and we support them. We are obviously sending out press releases letting the industry know that they're going to be attending the show. We usually send out product to a lot of the different food editors on the food trade side. Uh, we also look at the local media within the city that the show is being held. So we'll send it to the local TV stations. We'll send it to the local newspapers because a lot of those people do go to the show. And then what we try to do is set up um, basically interviews at the show for our clients uh, with the different media outlets that are going to be there. Now, and a, the other thing that we do, depending upon, again, where the client is during their life cycle is we have internally our own proprietary database of brokers and distributors, and we do a lot of email blasts leading up to the show that if you're looking for a new product or looking for you know a profitable product, stop by the booth. So that's another thing that we do. And the other aspect that we have here is we have our proprietary food uh, PR Food Meteor Index, which is uh, basically 100,000 media outlets in North America with over 300,000 um, media contacts. So we can pull up Good Morning America. We can tell you what they're talking about, what they're writing about. We can pull up any kind of 
newspaper, the New York Times, whatever it may be, or any kind of food pub, whatever it may be. And we also have our own proprietary um, database of food blogs that we basically take a look at. We break them out by the size of their social media platforms and what kind of foods they blog about. Because we know the millennials, that's where they're going. That's where they go to get their information. Well, it's really fascinating. Again, your website, and how if they want to reach you by telephone or any other they way, can, how can yeah. they do it? You can reach me at area code 508-303-5094, and that's my direct line. And again, our website is www.tff, that's Tom Frank Frank, and A-N-D-S-O-N dot com. Uh, I really appreciate it, Alan. Uh, I I go to the fancy food show every year, manage to uh, get five or six um, uh, people for my show because I find it fascinating. And yeah. uh, but but what really fascinating is. Well, let me ask you a question, sure. uh, which just came across my uh, uh, computer here. Um, what is the failure rate of new products? Food Ooh, it's it, well, you know, it it is very high. Um, I couldn't give you the exact, but let's just say out of the ten thousand that are launched every year, um, you know, maybe you know. And again, when they say new products, you have to understand that that could be an extension of a line that an existing company already has. So let's say they have two different granolas, and all of a sudden they extended it to three or four more flavors. So right. that's called a line extension. Um, but the, I, I think it's about 72% of them fail. Wow. And it's because they don't go in with the understanding of the industry. They don't understand how hard it is to do it and the capital you need to be able to do it. Um, it it's, it's, you know, slotting fees. There's a lot of different things that, that you have to overcome. And then if you hire different kind of brokers, they're looking for a percentage. So everybody puts something on it. You sell it your wholesale. The distributor gets a piece. The broker gets a piece. And then the retailer can mark it up whatever they want. So, Well, Alan, um, I had a great question and went right out of my mind. Which, uh, <laughs> um, oh, yeah, I know what uh, – at a guess, what do you think would be uh, will be the f uh, food trends for this year? Um, I, I think a lot of what you see and everything is 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 now is the ethnic style foods because Americans' consumer palates are really changing with all the diversity we have now in the United States. It, it's really trending to ethnic, um, if you will. Uh, value-added kind of products. Um, and again, it's still going to be the very healthy aspect of it. Um, that's something that's still, you know, very important to consumers. Um, understanding what they're buying, ingredients are very important. Um, I know there's some things going on in the background about labeling. Uh, I know that I think there's going to be changes to that within the next year, year and a half. Uh, so it, it's really, you know, the whole ethnic area has really um, starting to take off, whereas for the past, say, 10 to 12 years, it was the allergen 
part of the industry, the whole gluten-free um, arena and those gluten-free products, which are still growing at a pretty good clip. Uh, we originally, uh, oh, God, we've been in business. We're actually celebrating our 10th year anniversary this year. And when I first started, we worked with a, a great company in Connecticut called Bakery on Main. And this gentleman, Michael Smulders, was the first one to understand that whole allergen piece. And he came out with um, the first gluten-free granola. And Michael grew in four years into a national brand. And now he sold worldwide. And I would, think, I would think Michael's probably about 14, 15 years into it. But he understood it. He had natural food stores in Connecticut. He saw the trend. He was able to take advantage of it, and he, and he went with it. So those are the kind of things. Organic is always going to be big. It, it's a slow, steady you know, grow with that because a lot of people can't afford the extra dollars that goes along with buying organic products. So it's, um, you know, I, I, I would say it's more on the ethnic side of the business right now where I think you'll see the most, most growth within the industry. Well, uh, Alan, it's always a pleasure to talk to someone who knows exactly so well. Uh, I hope I see you at the fancy food. Yeah, I'll give you a call and we'll... Yeah, I'll give you a call and we'll hook up for sure. Oh, and for I'm sure, on. because uh, uh, I have a hunch you've got a lot to teach me. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and I'm sure you can teach me things too, so that would be excellent. Uh, and real, I appreciate the opportunity very much. Well, I appreciate that you came on and it was really a great uh, uh, talk. Talk to you again soon. All right, thank you. Good night. Thank you for listening tonight. All of our guests are invited because they offer actionable advice to our audience. They do not pay to join us, but rather demonstrate their capacity for helping our audience add profits. Thank you for listening, and we'll be here again next week with other experts to talk about ways to improve your profit picture. Remember, we're here every week at blogtalkradio.com slash smallbusinessdigest. If you like what you heard today, tell others about our efforts. If you would like to be a guest or suggest topics for future hours, email me at info at smallbusinessdigest.net. That's info at smallbusinessdigest.net. We would also like to remind listeners that besides our radio efforts, Small Business Digest comes to you via the web, through our video channel, and in our magazine. You can subscribe for any or all of these by going to smallbusinessdigest.net. That's smallbusinessdigest.net. Thank you, and have a good day. Thank you for listening tonight. All of our guests 